This is talk number seven out of ten in Ecclesiastes. So we've got eight, nine, and ten to go after this one. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're well over halfway through. Now, in our modern society, people talk a lot, don't they, about uh, aspirations. You'll be familiar with the phrase that people have a bucket list. Uh, you know, they've got goals in life that they want to do things before they die and time runs out. Um, people like to set out clear goals. But I can tell you, in all my short life, hey, no one laughed when I said that. In all my short life, I've never met a single person who has deliberately set out to be shallow. I've never met anyone who said, ever since I was a child, there's nothing I've wanted more than to be trivial, superficial, and shallow. I don't know anyone, do you, who sets out never to take anything seriously. I think it's fair to say we don't want shallow relationships. I don't think we want our society to be shallow or superficial, although there is this weird dynamic in our culture that we also don't want to be too serious, do we? Um, we don't want to be thought of as being too extreme. We don't want to be that parson, pe- pe- parson? Or, or person, parson or person, that works, um, who kind of kills the mood or spoils the party. It's a complex business being human, isn't it? We don't want to be too serious, but we don't want to be thought of as shallow is it possible to be serious and enjoy life we could say that the other way around couldn't we or is it possible to really enjoy life in a way that is not shallow we're continuing our series in the book of ecclesiastes then and when we're in the second half, if you were here last week, we're in this second half, we're holding out five traits. The teacher holds out the possibility to us of living wisely in this broken world. Last week, we were thinking about being a person of humility. And this afternoon, we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a person of depth? One secular writer I came across, just doing a bit of research on this topic this week, trying to be deep. Um, This is a secular writer, identifies five key traits of depth. And here they are. Did you do that or did I? Oh, I did that, did I? The power. Here they are, five key traits of depth. This This is not a Christian or religious person. To be a person of depth involves seeing beyond mere appearances. Things are not always what they seem. It involves not being gullible, i.e. not believing everything you hear or see. It involves being a good listener. I think by that the person meant being willing to learn from other people rather than talking all the time. Being aware of long-term consequences. So not just being all about the here and now instant 
gratification? What does it mean for the long term? And lastly, not being self-centered. And by that, the person meant not being insecure. Uh, often, our criticisms of others are born from the fact that we're uh, insecure and, and we, we love to do people down to make ourselves feel better. That's not a trait that looks very deep, is it? So not being self-centered in that way. I, I, I think if we did a little poll, a little survey, we would all agree that those are all good ideals. I, I hope we would all agree with that. The question is, where do we find the resources to be like this? How is it possible to be this kind of person? And why would it be worth it? I, I, I find it really interesting reading this during this past week, because although this is a secular person writing this, all of these traits have biblical roots. All of these traits have deep and profound roots in, in, a, in a biblical worldview. More, more than that, I, I don't want to dwell on this because we'll run out of time this afternoon, but you, you, you'll sense that this, this is something that strikes me powerfully. There is a narrative in our modern society that says, if you are a Christian, if, if you're a religious person, that will make you narrow. It will stifle your creativity. It will narrow your options. You won't be an open-minded, broad-minded person. Secular philosophy knows that this is important. But I, I don't think our, our secular thinkers have any basis or foundation for these traits being true. I don't think our secular thinkers know, even when it comes right down to it, why these things are good things. I think secular philosophy often wants to fruit the good things, wants our society to function well and be good, but it doesn't want the root that that fruit grows from. We're, we're in a society, I think, that is quite deliberately and corporately abandoning any, any kind of Christian worldview and castigating that as being narrow and harmful. And yet we want to be like this, don't we? All of us want to be like this. But we don't know how to be like this. I think the book of Ecclesiastes speaks very directly into these questions, but it takes us much further than secular philosophy ever can or will. I think the teacher fundamentally aims to show that if we would be a person of real depth, we, 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 we need to be people of faith in the living God. As I'm getting older, I'm not that old, but as I'm getting older, I'm realizing more and more, I've said this to one or two of you, maybe I've said this publicly, I'm realizing as I'm getting older that one of the traits that of, of, mat of maturity, if you like, is the ability to hold things in tension that seem like opposites. To, it, it, it is possible sometimes for more than one thing to be true at the same time. And having the ability 
not to veer off from this direction or this direction, but hold things in tension is, is a key to living wisely, I think. The particular tension that's apparent in Ecclesiastes is a very stark one, isn't it? Death on the one hand and life on the other hand. How do we accommodate that? On the one hand, we know that the world is often sad and broken and hard. And yet, on the other hand, we also know that often the world is happy and amazing and wonderful. A person of depth, or better still, a person of faith will have the resources to understand that tension and to be equipped to survive and cope with the mixture of good days and bad days that will inevitably make up what our lives are like in this world. I, I, I don't often like being pierced or what I'm preaching, but I have a great burden for you as a church. As pastors, you know that we love you. And one of the burdens that I have often in my heart is for us to be robust and to have a theology that would undergird our lives and enable us, equip us to not be fragile as we live our lives in this world. I think Ecclesiastes is a book that's very relevant to these kind of questions. How can we have steel in our spines and yet be tender and compassionate? How can we cope with the messy mixture that life often throws up of good days and hard days? That's what I mean by being a person of depth. Let me try and show you and open this up. We're going to ask a couple of important questions here. This was the best way I could think think of to open this up. The first question, if you've got one of the programs, you'll see it there. Here's a good question when you read Ecclesiastes. Is the teacher happy or sad? Be good to read Ecclesiastes and ask that question. Is the teacher a pessimist or an optimist? Today we're looking at chapter 9, which one writer calls Vintage Ecclesiastes. And I think the reason the writer calls it Vintage Ecclesiastes is because all the themes in the book, there's only 12 chapters, but all the themes in this book are like encapsulated in this chapter 9. They all collide here. So far, the message seems to have been, we'll come back to this, in summary, everyone dies, so enjoy life. And chapter 9 says exactly that. The structure of this chapter, even, is a sort of joy sandwich with sad bread and, a, and slices of joy in the middle. What a sandwich that would be. Sad bread. That's, that's a, I don't know if that metaphor works. But let, let me show you. Um, first of all, um, we'll, we'll take these, uh, we'll, we'll do this, the bread slices, the top and bottom slice first, 
and then we'll do the joy in the middle, okay? So verses 1 to 6, the certainty of death. At the start, the teacher is wrestling with the fact that every human being shares a common destiny. We've seen this throughout our studies in Ecclesiastes. And somehow, this teacher, he, he's confident in the fact that things are safely in God's hands. And yet there's a tension here because he still seems to be struggling to know whether God is his friend or his enemy. Look, look with me at verse 1. I reflect on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. I take that to mean no one knows whether God loves them or hates them. The reason he's grappling with this is because one way to try and answer the question, does God love me or not, is to look at my circumstances. And the teacher is a wise man. When he looks at people's circumstances, he can't tell. Why can he not tell? Because every person dies. It doesn't matter if you're wise or a fool. It doesn't matter if you live an immoral life or a highly ethical life. The, what he says in verse 2 is that all share a common destiny. So he's grappling with this idea. How do I know? Because experience tells me that the same destiny comes to all. Verse 2 says literally, everything is the same for everybody. Regardless of their merit or lack of it, everyone dies he gives a few contrasts the righteous and the wicked the good and the bad the clean and the unclean those who offer sacrifice and those who don't as it is with the good so with the sinful as it is with those who take oaths so with those who are afraid to take them in verse 3 he says that death itself is an evil it's almost an outrage Things were never meant to be this way. One writer says that death is an ever-present reality throughout life, always casting its pall over human activity, always lurking and lying in wait. I think the teacher perhaps sees one benefit here in death, if we can call it a benefit, in verse 3. We sense something of the mad evil that can lurk in human hearts. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards they join the dead. I think it occurs to the teacher here that even the most wicked humans will not reign forever their time will come too there is no human power that is invincible even the most powerful tyrant cannot bully death and the world's most despicable tyrants 
have never been able to defeat death. It's almost as if the teacher is saying that God has deliberately and wisely placed a limit on human creatures like us who want to be God. Death shatters any illusion that we might have of being in control. And the teacher goes on to say it's not just the certainty of death that does this, but the uncertainty of life too. Let's jump to the end of this section that Joan read to us, verse 11 and 12. Later here, the teacher tells us that no one really knows how things will turn out. Um, in verse 11, the teacher mentions five people who you would expect to be winners. The fast, the strong, the wise, the brilliant, the learned. Generally, it is true that people like this should win and do win in life. But the point the teacher's making is that sometimes, despite their skill and talent, they lose. No matter what our skills might be, sometimes because of events beyond our control, we never have a sure grip on success. Life is never like a computer where you put inputs in and you can predict the output. Things can happen outside of our control. Circumstances can change. Unforeseen, unexpected events can overtake our best plans. And in verse 12, the teacher describes this unpredictability from nature. Despite our best human skill, sometimes like a fish caught in a net or a bird taken in a trap, we, we don't really know for sure how things will turn out. Verse 12, no one knows when that hour will come. You don't know. I don't know for sure. Now, the teacher is not suggesting here that this is pure fate. And neither is he saying that God has lost control somehow. What the teacher is saying is that from our human perspective, life is unpredictable and transient. We shouldn't be surprised at the mixture of good things and bad things that happen. I'm reminded of a verse in the New Testament that captures this and suggests that it's quite arrogant for us to think otherwise. I don't know whether James in the New Testament was a twin brother of the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes, but let, let me read to you James chapter 4. We don't need to turn to it. James said, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, 
you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. He could have written Ecclesiastes, couldn't he, this fella? But in the middle of this sad sandwich with his bad bread slices, that's the top and bottom, there's an incredible slice of joy in the middle. From verse 7. Oops. The gift of life. Just look with me again at verse 7. Right in the middle of all of this, the teacher says, Go! Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. There's almost irony there. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going... There's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. The teacher is emphatic and assertive. These are active words of command. Go, enjoy, do. Enjoy food and drink. Put your best clothes on. Live life with a smile. Enjoy relationships. Work hard with energy and zeal. So it is fair to ask, I think, is the teacher happy or sad? Which is he? Is he an optimist or a pessimist? Or is he just confused? I don't think he's confused. What, what he's reflecting is life itself, isn't it? Here's another question. I want to pause here and ask another question. And, and it's this. Is the teacher shallow or deep? I, I, I want you to know that I felt this all the way through Ecclesiastes because when you read verse 7 and, and through, te, through 8, 9, 10, it seems like the teacher is urging us to seize the day because we can't seize anything when we're dead. It says that in verse 10, basically. We just read it. So you will have heard this phrase. Oops. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. When I read Ecclesiastes, I've been struggling with this for the last few weeks. I, the question is, does the teacher in Ecclesiastes mean this? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The world can say this. Is that what the teacher's saying? This basically means forget your worries. Put your cares to one side. Enjoy life. There's only one life. There's a famous song called Enjoy Yourself. Sometimes at New Year, I quite like watching Jules Holland with his band on New Year's Eve. You know, the, it's often on BBC Two because they're a big band on BBC One. And um, this song is the song that always closes the show. It was written in 1949, apparently. It's been covered by Bing Crosby, Doris Day, The Supremes, The Specials. It's featured in car adverts. It was the theme for Simon Mayo's Radio 2 show Drive Time for a while. Let me read to you some of the lyrics. You work and work for years and years. You're always on the go. You never take a minute off, too busy making dough. 
Someday you say you'll have your fun when you're a millionaire. Imagine all the fun you'll have when you're in your rocking chair. You're going to take that ocean trip, no, much, no matter come what may. You've got your reservations made, but you just can't get away. Next year, for sure, you'll see the world. You'll really get around. But how far can you travel when you're six feet underground? Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Can you, you, do you know the song? Enjoy yourself. Is this what the teacher's saying? Forget your troubles and enjoy what you can while you can. Obviously, it all depends on what you mean, doesn't it? I think it's possible to say this kind of thing in a defiant way. possible to say this in a way that denies the hard realities of life I'm just never going to think about sad stuff I don't want to think about hard things I'm just going to ignore them and hope they never happen to me and if they do I'm going to hope they go away and if they don't I'll just stick two fingers up at fate defiance one of the reasons this book is hard is because this teacher refuses to let us live in denial he is looking reality right in the eye hard reality and trying to wake us up to do the same one writer I came across sums this up saying the astonishing thing is that instead of reckoning with the meaning of death, we humans fill our lives with the distractions of a thousand passions and squander what little time we do have to immediate but insignificant worries. It's also possible, friends, to say this phrase in a selfish way this is a bit different it's possible to say that eat drink and be merry for a tomorrow we die it's possible to use that sentiment as a as a means to justify all kinds of poor behavior isn't it you only live once so grab what you can look after number one i don't think in ecclesiastes the teacher anywhere even hints at commending reckless selfish behavior or just living for the moment thirdly it's possible to say this phrase in an empty way and what I mean by that is underneath this phrase what we really mean is we ain't got anything else have we <laughs> we called this series is this it and I think this life motto sums that up, doesn't it? But the teacher is not saying you may as well try and be happy because the alternative is being miserable. Any one of us could live life with this motto defiantly, 
selfishly, blindly and desperately. But in the end, what we're doing is saying it in a godless way. A secular person may well say, we only have one shot at life and this is all there is. But the teacher is not giving us these verses and telling us to endure life because there's nothing else. This teacher is urging us to endure life precisely because there is someone with a capital S else. I did wonder where this phrase came from during this past week. I thought it might have come from Shakespeare or something. You know, you, you know a phrase and you think, well, I, wonder, I wonder where it came from. So I googled it and I was surprised to find that it comes from somewhere else in the Bible. There was a time in history when God himself challenged the selfishness and unfaithfulness to him of his people. You can read this phrase in Isaiah 22, verse 13. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, comes to his people and he calls his, he calls his people to be appropriately sad and to repent and to put right what was so obviously wrong. And you know what they did and said? They shook their fist in God's face and said, Nah, enjoy yourself. We'll all be dead tomorrow anyway. We have, uh, so often, we have things upside down in life, don't we? We're so often sad when we should be happy. And we're trying to be happy when we should be sad. What we find in Ecclesiastes is that every single time the teacher talks about enjoying life, he only ever does so in relation to God. I wish we had time to go through all the references. In my notes originally, we were going to do that, but it would be too long. I've got all the references here if you want them afterwards. I counted five times up to this point, including chapter 9, where the teacher urges people to enjoy the simple things in life as gifts from a good God. And here in 9, verse 7, the same thing. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. In other words, God takes pleasure in us finding pleasure in the simple things of life. God has already approved. There's nothing wrong with good meals, enjoying friends, working hard. In Ecclesiastes, as in our experience, we have this, 
idea of death and life. And the teacher is reminding us that without God, without Christ, we will fear death and not be able to fully and freely enjoy life. But in Christ, death is conquered and life is to be lived wholeheartedly in him. Let's try and wrap up by highlighting one final thing. There's so many different ways we could go with this, but I want to highlight this. The generosity of God is, is actually a foretaste of future glory. What do I mean by that? I, I think what we see in Ecclesiastes is that the reality of death, it, it shakes our security and it shatters the illusion of control that we might have and it prevents us from putting our ultimate hope in earthly things. But in the same way, the good things that we do enjoy often in our lives can be viewed as a foretaste of the glory to come. We, we called these verses a joy sandwich. Verses 7 to 10 sound to me like a party in the middle of a storm. One writer describes this chapter as a table set in the mist. It's a great analogy that Ecclesiastes is all about mist, vapor, transience. And the, this, this writer is like, here, here is God setting a table in the mist. Even in a broken world, God is like a lavish host who welcomes us to his table, providing our daily needs. And how often does the Bible portray heaven future glory in these kind of terms I wish we had time to, to look all these up as well Isaiah 25 describes the future in terms of a massive banquet for the nations and it says there that God will swallow up death forever and wipe away the tears from all faces and what about the end of the Bible? Revelation chapter 19 describes the future as a wedding reception. We have some folks away at weddings this weekend. The future is described as a wedding reception for Jesus, who's the groom, and his people, the church, who are the bride. And the future is described as the wedding party. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable and he describes the kingdom of God as a massive party and the person hosting the party sends out invitations and people go I'm a bit busy I can't come I've just bought a cow I've just bought a field someone's just died and I've got and the, and the person hosting the party says I'm sick of all, all these people who were invited just go out and bring anyone you can find in it's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? How often God invites us to come and we go, I'm a bit busy. I've got better things to think about. 
the point I'm making is that the way God describes the future is by taking the concrete example of life's simple joys and saying to us, one day it'll be like this, but on steroids. The simple things we often enjoy now are the very things that God uses to whet our appetite for the future. Listen to this quote from David Gibson. This sums it up well. Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks like that is all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we'll do after we die. Isn't that a different mentality? Oh, I hope I've shown you that the teacher isn't being shallow. When he says enjoy life, he's not being empty or desperate or blind or defiant or selfish. He's not being cynical. He is full of faith in the goodness of God. It is ultimately the generosity of God that creates people of depth who are ready both to face the reality of life with hope and to gratefully enjoy the good things that God gives to us. Isn't it striking that in our lives, both our good days and our bad days can weaken our faith? Sometimes we don't trust in God because we're struggling and sad. And we say, how could he? Life's hard. And other times we don't trust God because we're complacent and comfortable and we have plenty. Aren't our human hearts faithless so often? Ecclesiastes urges us not to be surprised when bad things happen and to be thankful to God when good things do. We cannot manipulate life and we can't manipulate God but we can trust his goodness to us in Christ. At the beginning we refer to the struggle of the author here to know God, the assurance of God's love. He's kind of trusting God, but grappling. A person of depth will not base their assurance of God's love on their unpredictable circumstances, but will trust that God has showed his generosity and love ultimately by sending Jesus into this world to a cross to die for our sins he is the one who came to us in our brokenness he's the one who died the death that we deserve and who rose again he conquered death so that we would know life again and again we find I think that Jesus fulfills Ecclesiastes perfectly one writer says that Jesus literally and joyfully ate his way through the Gospels. You count the number of times Jesus has meals in the Gospels. He literally ate his way through the Gospel. 
people accused him of being too much of a party animal. What's he doing all the time? And then he died an agonizing death to save us. In a moment, we're going to close by singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. There's a beautiful verse. It says, See from his hands, his head, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? If ever there was a person of depth who endured the sorrow of death to bring us the joy of life, it was him. Friends, without Christ, we have nothing. With Christ, we have everything. Trust in Christ and find life instead of death. Grow in faith rather than despair. Get energy rather than apathy. And discover joy and thankfulness instead of fear. And be a person of depth, a person of faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its clarity, its incisiveness, its power, its relevance. We thank you that you have given us your word. It's mysterious and awesome. It challenges us and stretches us and encourages and reassures us at the same time. We thank you so much for speaking to us. Father, we pray, would you, by your spirit, cause your word to sink into our hearts, into our bloodstreams. Would you help us to be people of depth? We don't mean that in an arrogant way. Would you help us to be people who can face reality with hope and enjoy life and the good things you give to us with joy and thankfulness? We thank you for Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of you, your throne. We thank you that we have such a saviour. We pray that you would indeed put steel into our souls. Help us not to be fragile. Help us to trust you, to have courage, we pray in his good and powerful name. Amen.